evening. We are thankful that you are here this evening, especially to anyone that may be visiting with us tonight. Thankful you've come our way. We look forward to a few moments of study here uh, together this evening. Hope that you can be encouraged. Hope that you've had a good Lord's Day wherever you might have been, whether you were here for both services or possibly visiting somewhere else. We are thankful that you are here tonight. It is encouraging uh, to be together, and we appreciate it so much. We miss it quite often, as many of you do when you're not here. Um, last Sunday morning, we were, we were gone. We were back Sunday night, but yet still today, it felt like we'd been forever since we've been here on Sunday morning. We miss you all when we're not with you. We hope that you miss everyone else when you're not here. We look forward to just encouraging uh, each other this evening. I mentioned this morning I don't like to do announcements, so then everybody gave me 25 announcements, but we'll save those for the end. Uh, you always know that you have to be careful what you say. Tonight we are going to continue in the study that we've been doing monthly uh, off of the one-word study. Some of you are familiar with this, certainly from our time here together so far this year. Uh, but some of you may be familiar with it. It was done by some of the folks who are affiliated with the Mount Juliet congregation. Of course, uh, there's a different writer for each, uh, each particular word, both in a Devo book, kind of a daily Devo book, and in a study guide that looks a little more at the words in particular. So a lot of folks uh, had a hand in this particular study, and it's very interesting for us to think about. As I mentioned uh, before, it is a supposed to be a weekly study, but rather than kind of be tied into that, I've like to do it monthly, so it's spread out a little bit more, but it's something for us to consider. We've talked about a lot of different words, big picture words, and we've been talking about what I think is titled in the book. I didn't have a, a review for us in this particular slideshow, um, but sort of Christian character, forgiveness, self-control, things that we should be practicing in our life, and tonight we're going to spend just a few moments thinking about what the Bible has to say about humility. So this is week 11 in the weekly study, but of course month 11 for us in this particular year. I would begin by asking you, what is it that you think of when you hear the word humility? You know, I know that of course if you've been here today already, you've seen the bulletin possibly in the outline, and you may have already thought of something, but what comes to your mind when you think about humility? Maybe a, spe a specific person. I mean, for a lot of us, when you think about a humble Person, and we'll take the different forms of the word, but, but someone who is humble, who shows humility. Maybe there's somebody in your life. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was a particular boss or co-worker or just one of your friends. That when you think of someone who is humble, that is who you think of. Maybe it's a specific act, an act of humility. We're going to give an example towards the end of the lesson, but, but maybe there's something in particular that is, shows humility to you. Maybe it's someone who's willing to do the work. You know, we think about people who are in authority positions, people who maybe, you know, are, are in positions of rule. That's not so much in the church necessarily, but think about government or you think about even um, kind of in an English sense of like a king. If they're to humble themselves and do something, and maybe that, that causes you to think of the idea of humility. Our good friend Webster, when you look in the dictionary definition, describes humility as freedom freedom from pride or arrogance. Now, as we like to say, as we take a look at these words, uh, what we use them in our English language, what, what Webster uses to define humility may be close. Oftentimes they're associated, but that's not where we get our definition for many things. Of course, the main thing that we always use in reference to that is baptism. If you want to take what Webster has to say about baptism or the internet, 
Google has to say about baptism or anybody that you come across on the street, you'll find any number of definitions for what the term baptism means. So while I think Webster's onto something there, again, freedom from pride or arrogance, that's usually what we associate with humility. But we want to go further, of course, and even tonight think a little bit about what God's word has to say. We begin by looking usually at an Old Testament word. There are different forms of this word uh, and different places that it is used. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 is one. Now I'm going to say I think this is a New King James only place that this word might be used. So if you've got another version in front of you, it may not say the word humble or humility. Uh, but this word, Hebrew word, shafal, if you will. Shafal is the word that is used in Isaiah 57 in verse 15. Isaiah says that it is with the humble in heart, the people who are humble in their heart, that the high and lofty one whose name is holy dwells. So the high and lofty one whose name is holy, which you would not associate with being humble, associates with the, those who are humble in heart. Again, the New King James I have in front of me, but it says towards the middle of the verse, to revive this, or excuse me, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. I would go back to the English definition for just a moment. Freedom from pride or arrogance with a person who is humble in spirit or humble in their heart. That is who God is going to dwell with. This Hebrew word, shafal. There are other words that are translated humble in the Psalms, in the Proverbs. Uh, in other places, and it's used to describe God as well. He can be, um, the words can be used to describe or translated as humble for God, but certainly we need to be humble in heart. Now, I told you I was going to challenge you with the outlines today. We had consequences this morning. So when it comes to the Greek, if you've got it in front of you, and it doesn't make any sense, of course, when you spell it out there, but I hope you can, can uh, make sense of that word. But in the New Testament, when it comes to the Greek, I've tried it like 500 times at home yesterday, all right? Tapinophrosune. Tapinophrosune. If I say it faster and faster, I get closer. Tapinophrosune. That's that word, Greek. And it doesn't make a lot of sense when you hear it to explain the way it's spelled. But this is the word. Now, there's a few places it's used, but I like 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5 because of what's talked about in that particular section of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5. If you recall in 1 Peter 5 here, the first four verses are about shepherds or elders and the way that they are supposed to be, the way they are supposed to act. And so we're talking about them, how they are to serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. And not, and we like this, of course, with our elders, but being lords over the people or those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. That's what we think of when we think of our shepherds or our elders. But go on to verse 5. In connection, likewise you younger people submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we think about that quotation there from the book of Proverbs, and we think about what comes before it. When we think of the New Testament about being clothed, what do we usually think of? Well, we usually think of Ephesians and we think about the whole armor of God. We are to put on the whole armor of God. We need to wear those things constantly as we are in battle to withhold and withstand the fiery darts, the fiery arrows of the devil. But Peter, 
maybe in connection, but it sounds like a contrast. But of course, we in thinking in biblical ways realize the connection clothed with the armor of God, but also clothed with humility. This may be the easiest way to understand it here. We could kind of sum up the lesson by saying when we want to practice humility, we need to be clothed in it. Hopefully that is one of those things that people look at you and look at me and say, that's a humble person. That is a person who practices humility. Now, there is obviously in the Bible and in life a difference, an obvious difference in the concept of humility and humiliation. Humility and humiliation. Humility is an inward submissiveness, as we said a few moments ago, kind of taking our English look at it, an inward submissiveness, almost a modesty, if you will, in self-perception that deals with our attitude and our behavior toward one another's, toward one another. But to be humiliated is an outward circumstance that results in sometimes a forced embarrassment or a forced embarrassing consequence. But the Bible actually, of course, talks about both of those things. It is filled with instances of humility and humiliation. We talked about one of those this morning in our lesson as we briefly touched on Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar says those words about God being just after he's been brought down. He basically ruled the entire world. He had everything at his fingertips and he has to be brought low by the God of heaven. And then he utters those words in Daniel chapter 4. He is humiliated. And what's interesting is in that particular instance, he is humiliated before he is humble. But he becomes humble. And we see other examples. Of course, King Saul is humiliated in 1 Samuel chapter 15 because of his lack of respect for God's commands. But at the same time, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32, he humbles himself before God. So we have to understand that as we think about even the Old Testament. But the New Testament evidences our need for humility in all of our actions. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at two passages very quickly from Matthew and two from Luke. The first one is Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 4. We could go to many different sayings of Jesus to help us understand the need for humility. Perhaps maybe the, the most famous one is Matthew 18, 1 through 5. In verse 4... He says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so we understand from that example of a little child what it means to be humble. As well, if you're there in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 12. Jesus, in talking to the scribes and Pharisees, says, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Just another evidence or more evidence for us to the way that we get things backwards. And certainly the world does very often. Two more, this time from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 14 and verse number 11. First of all, Luke 14, 11. Jesus again, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see basically the same exact language. And then Luke 18 and verse number 14. In the discussion of the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we know this well, two men who are praying, two men who are praying in very different positions, two men who are praying in very different attitudes of their heart. And in verse number 14, I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I understand there is some overlap here, uh, and, and the gospel, different gospel accounts share some of the same things, but multiple times Jesus is reminding us of the need for humility. We need to follow the example of Jesus. That's pretty much what it amounts to. When we think about our life, that kind of sums up everything, but especially when it comes to humility. We really take a very brief look at the words that are used in both the Hebrew and Greek. We try to spend several moments on application. And tonight, I'd like to share three of the Devo sort of portions of the book with you. The first one is, talks about life on empty. And if you've got your Bible, you can be turning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Life on empty. Do you ex- have you ever experienced the sense of joy that comes, and follow me here, the sense of joy that sometimes comes after you filled up your car with gas, all right? I know it seems a little silly, but hang with me. Don't deny it either because almost all of us have been there when you've been low on fuel and you stop and you fill up the car and you got a full tank of gas, seeing that gauge push to the limit instills confidence in us. We can... We can go with a full tank. Traffic jams are no problem. The air conditioning is always on. The speed limit seems more like a guideline than a regulation. And there's no thought of having to stop for a while. We can just cruise on like there's no care in the world when our gas tank is full of gas. That's kind of funny to think about, but consider the opposite. Have you ever been at that moment when the warning light comes on? And I'll be uh, the first one to confess and admit there's been at least one Sunday. We were on the way to Lake Hills from Dunlap going over the mountain <laughs> that that light comes on. And we are just praying that we can make it all the way to Highway 58, you know, because we don't have time to stop or we're going to miss the first song and the preacher's going to be late. So we've just got to keep going. And you go from this childlike joy and sense of confidence to straight fear and worry. Because you're now living life on empty. When that warning light comes on, panic sets in. Traffic jams become a nightmarish race against the clock. The AC is not even an option. The speed limit is wishful thinking. And suddenly your eyes are fixated on the prices of every filling station within sight. And I hear a little bit of laughter, so I think you know where we're talking about. You truly learn to appreciate every mile when you live life on empty. So in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing from prison. Paul was a person who lived quite often on empty, not always at his own fault, although certainly he would take encouragement from that at times as well. But sometimes at his lowest place in life, he could appreciate the emptiness, listen, of Jesus. Paul and his empty moments in prison writing this letter could appreciate the emptiness of Jesus. So when he writes to those in Philippi in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, but really going down through verse 11, when he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, and he talks about this person, this man, who he says, being in the form of God, made it, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And notice verse number 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he... Here's a version of the word we looked at a few moments ago, not the full long word, but to pineo, a little bit shorter of a different version, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus essentially lived on empty when he willingly became flesh. 
When he left a home in heaven with God the Father and came to this earth to live life on empty for you and for me. He withstood the harsh temptation. He seeked out though he sought out those who were outcast. He mentored stubborn fishermen who would probably drive many of us crazy if we tried to teach them about what it means to teach others about the gospel. And of course, above all, he endured the shame of crucifixion. Jesus came to live life on empty so that all who live on empty in this life might be made full in the life to come. But that took humility. He had to humble himself. I think humility is not just the absence either, as we said a little bit, of, a bit ago, of the pride or arrogance. But sometimes it's taking that what we have and making ourselves of no reputation. Making ourselves in the form of a bondservant. I think I skipped over one of the notes I had earlier, if I can go back. But the writer said it this way, the truly humble man is not the one who exalts himself or belittles himself, but rather the one who doesn't think of himself at all. That's the Christ that we follow after. That's the Christ who lived on empty. We can see from Paul, he understood that and he tries to get us to understand the need to be humble. And we see that in the example of Christ and we need to take that on as well in our life. Number two, let's take a walk. Have you ever tried to impress someone before? Have you ever found yourself trying to impress or satisfy someone and desperately you would do just about anything to win their favor? When babies cry, making silly faces and acting like a fool to anyone else who's watching from the side might do the trick. When the boss tells a corny or terrible joke, then you make that exaggerated laugh that tries to, to show that you would want to be in his good graces and so on and so forth. We oftentimes spend our life longing to receive satisfaction in satisfying others. That's the way we do things sometimes. But have you ever found yourself wondering what it would take to satisfy God? The Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth God in heaven what it would take to satisfy him is it possible that we could be so perfect or be so good that we would impress God you're familiar with Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8 Micah lists a few things there for us it's a, a list that we are familiar with as we think about uh, what it means to do something that God wants that God would be pleased with to win the favor of God seems like an eternity of work. There's no way that even whether we live 60 years or 90 years or if we could live 200 years, we could not do enough. But Micah reveals for us this mistaken attitude that we sometimes have. Because according to what he says there, according to this text, God desires three simple things. Oftentimes what we do is we say, well, if my prayers are longer... If my prayers are fuller of more these and thous, if my singing is louder, if my Bible is bigger, if I can just do all of these things, I can please God. But Micah says there, of course, that we need to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the three simple things there. The key, of course, is to walk humbly with God. Walking with God, as we even see in Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 24, that Enoch walked with God. Can you imagine? I mean, really imagine. Because we say it about ourselves. 
today, well, I'm walking with Christ. I'm walking with God. And we are. I don't mean to belittle that. But can you imagine Enoch walked with God? That takes on a different context in Genesis chapter 5 than it does even in 2019. It is not about, and this was an interesting way of thinking about it, it is not about running ahead of him, running ahead of God in a proud sense, and assuming that we know what he wants from us, nor is it to slack behind him lazily and expecting him to just accept whatever it is that we've got, whatever it is that we offer. Walking with God means we do more listening than we do talking, more obeying than we do assuming, more receiving him and his words than rejecting. We may never impress God in that sense with what we do, but we can walk with him humbly and bask in his redemptive work in our lives. Isn't that often what we're trying to share with others? That's simply what it is. It's not that I'm better than you. I want to share with you the ability and the opportunity to walk with God and to enjoy his redemption that he offers to us. He offers it to mankind. I can experience it and you can experience it. And that's simply what we want to share sometimes. But it involves humility. It involves being humble. That's the only way that we can go through that is walking humbly with God. And then third and finally tonight, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verses 1 through 17. This may be where we turn to see humility at its finest hour and its greatest example. And as you turn there and you see it, you'll be reminded. But this is the greatest example of Jesus' humility, of course, outside of the cross or humbling himself in that sense. But you remember that following the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes up a towel, that, an action that would be typical of a servant, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And of course, this whole text here, this whole chapter, this whole area is rich with lessons in Christ's humility and in Christian humility. But just consider a few things here. Number one, it takes humility to allow Jesus to work on us. It seems counterintuitive that the master of our lives would lower himself to wash our feet. But it takes humility. Like Peter does here in this passage, do you recall what Peter does in verse number 8, if you turn to John 13? But impetuous Peter jumps in, no Lord, nope, not me, you're not going to do that to me. But like Peter, we would be quick to give reasons why it should be the other way around. However, if we are to be cleansed, it will happen by the work of Christ. We don't need to fight his cleansing power, but it takes humility to allow Jesus to work on us. And think about this as well. He washed everyone's feet, even Judas. What greater love is there than a willingness to wash the feet of the one who will betray you? Even within a matter of days, certainly maybe even hours there, as we think about nearing the end of his life, he had his closest relationship with these few folks, with these 12 apostles. And he was no respecter of persons even when it came to this act. He was willing to wash everyone's feet. And that is humility. But notice from the question there, he says, ask them essentially, do you understand what I have done to you? Because he tells them, go and do likewise. Do as I have done unto you. He essentially calls his disciples to go on and do for others what he's just done for them. And he says, there's a blessing. There's a blessing that comes in following his path, the way of Jesus. 
Service is not just about helping people do good, helping people are doing good. It is about helping people to see the light of Jesus in his cleansing work. It's about helping people as disciples of Christ. And he even gives them the question there in verse number 12, as we said, do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand? Wondering if they, if they catch it. We get frustrated with the disciples or apostles because some things just kind of fly right over their head and they don't understand. So he asks, do you understand? And his point is clear in verse number 16, if you turn to John 13. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. No servant, no one that is sent is greater than the master, than the one that sends him. Jesus' work would go down in history. I mean, they certainly remember, and here we are thousands of years later thinking about it and reading about this moment of humility. That the master was willing to get to work, even if it was a short amount of work, but to the work of washing their feet. One of the things that's included in this particular chapter and study on humility is a story about Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's. And Dave Thomas tells a story in one of the books that I think he wrote uh, about the work that he had done, about how he received his MBA before he got his GED. He didn't actually finish high school and got his GED, but when he talks about MBA, he doesn't mean Masters of Business Administration, as many of us would think of it. He meant the mop bucket attitude, because he tried to live, as many people do, as a master, as an owner, as a founder, as someone who was willing to pick up the mop bucket and do some of the work. He says, I got my MBA before I got my GED because I wanted to be a worker. And I wanted to instill that in others. And hopefully all the employees that would go on to work in that company. That those who would be first would be last and the last shall be first. So I ask you when we think about humility tonight, what do you think? Where do you stand? Sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes it's easy when we are already low to consider being humble, but it's the times that we're a little bit prideful and think, well, I don't know that I got time to do that. I think that's a little bit beneath me. I don't know that I can do that kind of work. We need to think about humility. And even as we said in our lesson this morning that we need to forgive because it's required because we've been forgiven, well, we have a Savior who is willing to humble himself, and so we should show humility in our life. And so tonight, very simply, as we conclude this lesson and ask you, what do you think? How are you at practicing humility in your life? May it be a question that you consider tonight and even as you go forward into your week. As we conclude our lesson, a song has been selected, a song of invitation. It doesn't necessarily tie in with the lesson per se, but it's a, a moment that we can think about the humility of Christ. The humiliation, because that's what he went through as well, of hanging there on the cross so that you and me and the world could have salvation maybe you're here tonight you've never submitted yourself humbly before him in baptism for the remission of your sins so that he could add you to his church we'll be singing to encourage you to consider doing that humbling yourself before god maybe you've done that and you humbled yourself but like many waves on the sea and the many waves in our life you kind of get prideful again you turn away from god and you stand in need of being humbled again confessing the sin that's in your life and coming back to him through confession repentance and prayer. We assemble here together, hopefully in humility, to encourage one another, even now as we stand together and as we sing.